Up behind me is a picture that I ran onto yesterday. And it is a picture of George Whitfield preaching in Moorfields, London in 1742. It's a kind of a high resolution rendering of it. But if you look at this picture, it's a perfect representation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. First, that verse says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I have above this in my own Bible, written in red, never, no, never give up. This is Jordan Whitfield preaching. And if you'll notice, there's a man trying to blow him with a trumpet, drowned him out. There's a man down below him trying to whip him with a whip. There's another man down below him. I don't know if you can see. You can. This man, he's got a little game set up, so kind of like a sideshow. This actually looks like a musket pointed at him. We have this lady doing something here, not sure what she's about. But then we have this man up here trying to listen. We have this person trying to listen. We have this guy trying to drown him out with drums. We have this lady drowned out, or, or she's trying to eagerly listen. And this, this person's listening. These folks are listening. But what we see here is exactly what it is in our day. And I think this picture perfectly represents the kind of attitude that we should have as we seek to be God's hands and feet, His church, in this time that we live in in our culture. No doubt they were throwing things at Him. It wasn't uncommon to have refuse thrown at you or spit upon or whatever when this was happening. Some will listen. A lot won't. But through George Whitfield, there was a major awakening lit. Major, major awakening. He just kept on going. In fact, I love this picture so much that I'd love to have one about this big hung up somewhere in our church with this verse put right under it. That would help us as we go on outreach and we go... Tell them about Jesus. And we think about what George Whitfield must have endured. We, we could look at this picture every time we would walk by it in the church here. And we could say, well, as I get ready to go talk to my family or I'm around my family. Or, or if I'm going to my office or I'm around in my job and, and this is all happening. I'm going to stand like Whitfield. Because Whitfield stood in the strength of Jesus. That's why I would, and, and I'm serious when I say I'd, I'd really love to have a picture about this wide and about this big with this verse blazoned on the bottom of it. If anyone knows how to do that kind of stuff, come see me, okay? I've never been much into art, but I think this one speaks volumes about our steadfastness. <clears throat> I'm going to load the sermon now. All right. It's day 21. 
for the fasting portion of our time of prayer and fasting as a church. Technically, it ends today. If you count up the days on the calendar, it actually does. Are you finished? Well, that's up to you. If it was just a religious exercise, yeah, I guess you are. But if you've spent quality time with the Lord, and though you, some of you might have finished the sermon series, and, and those of you who haven't, continue going through it. I did write it for a five-day rather than a seven-day. You would have finished if we would have done seven, but I was trying to be considerate. But we're going to have one more Sunday school class on it. But as far as the fasting portion, fasting is a temporary thing to realign us with God. We're doing this in our unity, in our pursuit of God. That's why we did it. That's why we do this every January. And this is the first January that I remember in nine years that, that there's been such a corporate response, responsiveness to it like it has. It doesn't have to stop, no. In fact, if you've taken seriously what the Lord may have admonished you or shown you, then you, you're just getting going. Which means by this time next January, you should be that much further adapted and ahead of where you were today. Because He's going to continue to grow you and found you. For those of you who came and watched the documentary last Sunday night called Revival, as it talked about from the Reformation all the way up to the Hebrides in the early 40s, you would see that prayer and the Word of God has moved and shaped nations in special times of visitation. That's what biblical revival does. And it always comes in times like what we have now in our culture and in Western culture. It always has. But the church has not been idle. Maybe a large part of it has. But there's always been those few that God has drawn and begin to equip to receive that work that he's about to do. So to me, I'm anticipatory. I'm expectant. I do not believe with, without any doubt that God is preparing us for this work. And the conversation is growing large. If uh, you visit, and I will post that last sermon that I've been telling you about on the actual answer of what we must begin to pray toward and do. And it's not just us. It's, it's the churches in this valley. And it needs to be in all the churches across the land. What we must do. That message will be available by the end of this week. Okay, JT, don't let us forget that. It's by Dr. Jerry Bilks. Um, He's from Puritan Reformed Seminary. And he preached on it. uh, He's a little more academic than Richard. But he's he's not as lively. Some of you might like that maybe for a change. But if you're going to have to pay close attention to what he's saying. You can't just, you're going to have to work at it. You might even have to listen to it twice. I would, I would ask you to listen to it twice so that you can understand what the answer is to all that Richard has presented in the series of messages that we've been listening to on the past three weeks. Well, today, 
in response to what we've been going through, I want to talk about it's time to seek the Lord. Unity in our pursuit of God. Unity in our pursuit of God. We live in a very individualistic culture, or at least we used to. We, we really did. I, I'm not too sure it's too individualistic as they would like to think it is because they all look the same. Okay, there's nothing unique or new about much of what you see today. It's like a herd mentality down. Well, we all know what happens when one sheep gets an idea to go off the cliff. The rest just follow suit. Right? And that's what we see happening. in droves. So there's no unique individuality in it. There's not very many people going, I don't think that's legitimate. Everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid by the jugfuls. But then you have God's people standing back going, Mm-mm-mm-mm. something wrong with this. There's, there's something else behind it. And we, as God's people, have got to begin to think not as individuals with our own walk before us, but collectively as the church of God. We discussed in Sunday school how that's, that's only seen when we're together. We can know what's going on in our own individual lives as Christians by how we come together. And how we pray together. And how we serve together. You can tell. So first up, we're going to be looking at unity begins with priorities. Everyone loves Jerry Bridges, right? I mean, he is a... He was a fabulous man of God, loved to write a lot. But he had a book called Holiness. I I think it was called The Pursuit of Holiness. That may be A.B.W. Tozer. Nonetheless, he had a a devotional book made for it called Holiness Day by Day. And in this, he wrote, All of us face the pressure of more to do than we have time for. So we have to set priorities. Priorities. We have to determine what's most important in our lives. Every one of us has to do that. We have to ask, do I really want to grow spiritually? Get your goal clearly in mind and keep focused on that. What is your spiritual goal? What is it? Do you even have one? Because mediocrity seems to be the goal. Largely presented by God's people in this nation. That's not a goal. That's a consequence. He writes, do you want to be the man or woman God wants you to be? Do you want to be that man, that woman? Do you want to pay the price of the spiritual disciplines you need to practice in order to grow? Do you want to pay that price? See, that's the going above and the beyond. That's individualistic in that point between you and God. And no one's going to know about that but you and God. Those spiritual disciplines that He may lead you to do is only going to be known between you and God unless you share that. But that's all going to be easily seen and identified when we come together corporately. He says, or will you be content to sort of muddle through your Christian life and at the end have to sum it all up as no more meaningful than a trip to the corner store for a loaf of bread? 
He writes, the choice is yours. What will it be? I'll tell you. As for me, my resolve, God help me, is to do everything in my power as a man seeking to be surrendered before the Lord every day, to be used in any way that I can to facilitate Him moving in renewal among us. Because I know that's what it's going to take. I was contacted on the phone this week by a church asking me to come and learn how to be politically active. And I said, well, can I just share with you what I think about that? And I said, uh, I don't see anything wrong with what you're doing, trying to teach and educate God's people on how to be responsible citizens. But I think there's everything wrong with the order in which you're doing it. Because what you're doing is you're coming up with a plan to do something and then taking it to God and asking Him to bless it. You need to start with God first. And you need to start with the sins in your own congregation first. In fact, all the churches need that. We need a solemn assembly. Why don't you try calling one of those instead? And then try to go and attack. Okay, thank you. Click. But that's where we are. Pragmatism says something must be done, so go do something. That's not what Richard is telling us to do. He's telling us to line ourselves with our consecration before the Lord God who is holy. And by all those who approach him, he must be regarded as such, right? Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 1 through 12. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 1 through 12. And I know you guys know these verses inside and out, but we're going to read them again. In honor of God and His Word, let's stand as we read what we have for us today. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, because they had cleaned it out, remember, to the house of the Lord to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel, and for the king of his leaders, For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem, and the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. Before I read, I want to just remind you, there is a provision made in the law that allows them to keep the Passover When it's not at the regular time. And this was the time in which they did it. So even they did this. They did it according to the prescribed manner. That God had had prescribed. They didn't. It wasn't arbitrary. So they resolved to make a proclamation. In verse 5. Throughout all Israel. From Beersheba to Dan. That they should come to keep the Passover. To the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. Since they had not done it for a long time. And notice it says. In the prescribed manner. Because God has indicated to us very clearly what he expects. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. 
And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield, notice that word, yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh. And notice this, even as far as Zebulun, for they laughed at them and mocked them. This was even going into northern Israel. Where Jeroboam had set up the golden calves. They even went up there. Nevertheless, notice verse 11. Some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun, this hard to reach area in the north, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also, the hand of God was on Judah. Now note, this is the part I want you to see. And gave them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you please give us singleness of heart to obey the command of your word? Would you please impart to us as your body on this side of the of the new covenant, Lord, to take what you've given us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? And make us of one mind to seek you. One passion, Lord, to to see you exalted in our day. Give us this mind. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A couple of things I want to say here. Unity begins with priorities, as we just read. You all have to make decisions every day when it comes to priorities. Generally, it's you've got to do what you've got to do early on so you can get to work on time. Because you need to get to work on time. Because if you don't get to work on time, you're not going to have a job. Or at least used to in the old days, they fired people. Okay? But you need to have the job because if you don't have the job, you can't have the money to pay your bills. If you, can't, if you don't have the money to pay your bills, well then you have a cold house or you don't have a house, much less food to eat. Right? So you make priorities to get to work on time. Well, that's what you do. And work takes the bulk load of your day. But who gets the very first part of it? Because if he doesn't, if God doesn't get the first part of it, what are you doing? Giving him the leftovers at the end? Now, we could have a discussion about if you're a morning person or an evening person and all of that kind of thing. But here's where your priority list comes into play. Let's say you're not a morning person and you do well just to get there to work on time as you're chugging the coffee and, 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 you know. But let's say that your job is such that by the time the end of the day comes, maybe you have children at home or whatever it may be, you just, when you hit the, when you hit the sack, you're out. You don't have anything left over. Okay, well, if that's you, you're exempt from from spending your time with God. No, you're not. Because God's blessed you with that job. 
You may not find it to be a blessing, but he's giving it to you. You're not starving to death, and you don't, you're not, probably not losing weight. So you got food. How about this? Discipline yourself to get up earlier to spend time alone with God. You say, but you don't understand how I am in the morning. I don't even know my own name. That's where the just shall live by faith. Okay? And I can promise you this because I've done it. Even if you have, to, you have a cold house, you gather a blanket, and you have to literally find the heat duct in the room where no one will be disturbed by the light, and you plop down over that heat duct so the blanket goes... And you peel your arms out and you read your Bible trying not to fall asleep. I'm telling you, God will bless it. I had to do that for a long time. God used it. Because that's all I had. If it didn't get done then, it wasn't getting done. Now, if you happen to be the person who, who is fine by night, you're more functional, you aren't drop, brought, brought down by the duties of the day, fine, take it up with God. But what I'm saying to you is, you've got to give God some of your day. You will not walk in victory. You will not... You will not grow close. You will not be having a heartbeat after God unless you're spending time with Him. Then and only then will you yield. So you have to do that. It takes, it's, it's priorities. This singleness of heart to obey, notice this in verse 12. The hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey. They went everywhere inviting people. They even went into the northern kingdom of Israel, these runners that we just read about, to invite them to the Passover. They were given wholly to idolatry. And did you know that it was only around a hundred years or so later that they were carried off captive, the northern tribes? But some came. It goes back to that picture of Whitfield. Some listen. When we go out to share the gospel in the community at large, some listen. Well, have you seen any results from it? No. But God's doing something with it. I don't imagine Whitfield saw much from that group either. But history shows a different story. We're very linear in our thinking. Very narrow viewed. I would say we have more of a myopic uh, point of view. Very nearsighted. We have got to begin to think in faith. Not faith in faith, not even wishful faithing. But we're talking about faith in the Scripture as it's contextually given by God in His promises. That if we do what He asks us to do, even if that means going to northern Israel, they worship bulls up there and all kinds of unseemly things, think, that state that's that way or something. But... Or probably all around the land anymore in the country. There are going to be some that listen. There's going to be some that will respond. How much are they worth? Are they worth the journey? Well, Mickey, are they worth the pit bull? Mm-hmm. Give me my backpack so they can bite it instead. Because they have a locking jaw and he can just keep it. But do we have that determination to tell? Even if you don't see fruit? 
Jesus never promised us that we would see results. He told us to go tell. We have to be faithful to do that. And I believe when we're faithful, He is faithful. He's faithful even when we're not faithful. But it's even better when we are. So, singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So there's assembly gathered there in Jerusalem. What would the singleness of heart to obey look like in our day? What, 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 what would it look like? Wouldn't it be something if the churches were brought to bear of our condition by faithful ministers that preached the need for the body to strengthen its resolve and a corporate sacred assembly was called. A solemn assembly to seek the Lord until He comes. Filled by the majority of the gospel preaching churches in the land. Wouldn't that be something? But do you realize the amount of work that needs to be done even before that? If I say solemn assembly... I bet you there's some people here who don't even know what I'm talking about. Because I didn't even know about what it was until about six years ago. Verse 8 and 9, if you'll notice the words there used, it uses the word yield and return. Because they say, now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter His sanctuary. He has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God. And verse 9 he says, If you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion. What if we are supposed to do this for the sake of our young ones? What about if it's our young ones that are going to see this? Are we willing to to do what needs to be done on our part that they might see that bounty and have those blessings? Well, I know what's going to happen if we do nothing and I know what they're going to see. Well, unity begins with priority. We need unity in seeking the Lord together. And again, you can always tell the unity in seeking the Lord by the Christians individually, by how they respond when they're corporately together and how they pray together. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. book of Ezra comes on the heels of Chronicles. It continues the story. After they had been caught, uh, the nation is carried off into uh, captivity. Ezra is the book about them coming back from that Babylonian captivity. And they have been blessed by God with a decree from Cyrus to rebuild the temple. They've been given the money by Cyrus to do it. They've been given... Uh, a, a no, uh, no, don't bother us clause by Cyrus to not bother them by the people of the governors of the land. God is faithful to his word. Sadly, not a very large remnant came back from Babylon of God's people. Sadly, a larger majority chose to stay in Babylon and be entertained by all the junk. Of course, they were later wiped out when uh, um, that 
when Babylon fell. Of course, Darius came in. You remember? But in Ezra chapter 3, we have worship restored at Jerusalem. And let's read in verses 1 through 13. And when the seventh month had come to the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So there we have this thing we had in the, with Hezekiah in Second Chronicles. Singleness of mind or the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Hezekiah was bringing them together to have the Passover. They had cleaned out the temple, right? Because it had been so bad under his daddy. They did that. They were able to celebrate the Passover like they hadn't celebrated since Solomon. Okay? Fast forward. They get carried off captive to Babylon. Because after Hezekiah, Josiah was the last good one. And then it all went downhill from there. Their sins had been called up before God and they were determined for judgment. God's brought them back. And now what do they find themselves doing? Rebuilding the temple, not just cleaning it out. This time they're actually rebuilding it. And they were to gather together as one man to Jerusalem to do this very task. Then it says, Then Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren, and the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel. First thing you have to do when you set to seek the Lord is you got to rebuild the altar in your life. Sometimes you got to repair it. Sometimes you got to get the junk off of it. you got to put it back up on its basis. And first thing you have to do is remember that it's kind of gotcha-eyed as it is. That's country for out of square. You have to do that. Because an altar is a place where you die. You're saying, I'm done, Lord. I've moved and lived without the altar and I've lived my way. I'm coming back. I'm, I'm re- repairing the altar. I lay my life down again. So verse 3 says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, and they were afraid because they were a minority, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord both morning and evening. It says they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles that it is written. And I'm going to skip down to verse 5. And afterwards they offered the regular burnt offerings. So if you, if you follow this on down, they did everything they were supposed to in the prescribed manner. But look at verse 7. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people at Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. All the provision was given. They had to face their fears. And they had to believe God. And they simply had to be obedient. And they did it according to the way God said they had to do it. The church doesn't talk like that much anymore in our day. I like what Richard said in one of his entries in the sermons. He goes... Pastors, by and large, are pretty innovative. They're very good at coming up with solutions to make it seem like something is happening from God. So they pump you up with artificial stimulants. From raving bands on stage to light shows with lasers and fog machines. Donut bars that greet you at the door. A message of being cool and hip. And it's all well because Jesus is your homeboy. This is the language used in our day. 
Where's the reverence? Where's the consecration? Where's the holiness? Where's the set-apartness? Where's the seriousness? Where's, where's God? But innovation matters. I was even told in one of my classes that we should consider getting away from this gathering here and make this sort of a studio and we'll just pump it out to you online. Yeah, that's how they're thinking. Oh, and, and I'm not over, I'm not exaggerating, by the way, that's, that's a real thing. So, so I, after they gave money, to make sure this was done. In verse 8 it says. Now in the second month of the second year. Of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. Zerubbabel the son of Shelatel. They always go through these names. The priests and the Levites. And all those who had come out of the captivity of Jerusalem. Began work. And appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above. To oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And then it says. In verse 9. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers. Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah. Arose. Now notice this language. As one to oversee those working on the house of God. They, they did it as one. We have got to begin to pray. And ask God to bring God's people together as one. It's got to happen. You say boy that looks complicated. It is. But I believe God can do it. But I can't say that I prayed about it long enough to be effective. In other words. Richard asked, when's the last time you've been to a prayer meeting that focused solely on national repentance? When's the last time you even heard God bring your people together to have one voice once again? And one cry for you to come down and heal our land. They had shared, it says in verse 2 through 6, they had shared in the priority of rebuilding the altar so they could be in compliance with the law of God. They shared in that. Do we share in the altar? Ask yourself the question. They shared in the priority of supplying the practical needs of those working on the temple. Sometimes it's easier to do that than it is to share in the altar. It's easier to give than it is to sacrifice. The priests and the Levites shared in the priority of fulfilling their calling in the house of the Lord. Man, do we not need the pastors in our day to come back underneath that realization that what they do, they do by them grace of God and by his strength only they don't need gimmicks notice they were all driven by one shared priority and that was the glory of God if we read on in chapter 6 if you go to Ezra chapter 6 verses 21 and 22 they also had celebrated a Passover And it says, then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity. Now remember it was small. But it says they ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land. In order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. That goes back to what Hugh was saying today. They had it with joy. For the Lord. Now note I got circles all over my Bible here. For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They had separated themselves from all the filth of the nations and of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. You're going to have to, if you're compromised, I don't know what you're into, but you're going to have to separate yourself once again. 
This, this, this consecration that we've been talking about, it's not just a once and done deal. Every day, you have to take your priority list and say, God, you're first. That doesn't fit in my life. I won't have that in my home. What, what do you think the chances are of anyone bringing any unseemly thing into my house? Not a chance. What do you think about them playing things on my TV set that would be displeasing to, to God? No. And I want it to even get even better. You have to draw a line. You have to understand who you belong to and you cannot forget Look at this in the green. When they did this, the Lord made them joyful. Well, yay, could use some of that. And turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them. Because if you read the narrative, the narrative is in Ezra there before chapter 6. The governors conveniently forgot that there was a letter written from Cyrus. And because Cyrus died. So he, they, they made them, they give them a stop work order under arms. They had a force of arms. They made them stop work. They sought the Lord God of heaven. An inquiry uh, was made because uh, they started work again because they believed God. They just did it. And then those governors sent to Darius and said, Hey, these Jews are doing this. Can you please inquire and see if there's ever been a record of them saying they could do this? And sure enough. It was found, and when it was found, it was like jet fuel on their fire. You couldn't get them to stop. God turned the heart of the king towards them. So, think of it this way. God allows Babylon to tear his house down that they had built for him and he had consecrated. And then God uses another pagan king to rebuild it. Finance it, I should say. The Lord is, there's nothing impossible for Him. And yet, we walk around kind of like things are impossible for God. I like what Richard Owen Roberts said in one of his things. He said, uh, though things look bleak right now, you have to get your eyes off of the problem and onto the problem solver. Right? A.W. Tozer writes, Before a sinful man can think a right thought of God, there must have been a work of enlightenment done within him. We pursue God because and only because He has first put an urge within us that spurs us to pursuit. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outpouring of that impulse is our following hard after Him. On our part, there must be positive reciprocation of this secret drawing of God is to eventuate an identifiable experience of the divine. In other words, we have got to respond. So what do you do at the end of this three weeks or four Keep going. You don't stop. Okay, enjoy some dinner again. But keep going. Keep pursuing. Have you developed a prayer time in the evening? Keep it going. Have you put God first by listening to this? Okay, I no longer have a book. What am I supposed to do? Find another one. I'll help you. I love to help people find this kind of stuff. You want something new? Come talk to me. Keep it going. Don't just stop. And we're going to finish here. Acts chapter 2 talks a lot about the early church. But it says that they were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And they did it because they were of one heart. 
So we have singleness of heart and mind. We have all one heart. And in the New, in the New Testament with the, new, with, the, with the church, they, had, they were together and they did have all things in common. And they, they, not only had, they not only stopped with just their priority being with God, but even their stuff. They shared their stuff. That's the kind of unity that it takes to sustain pursuing God. You, you, have, you have got to pursue God to sustain that kind of unity. You have to. So what are you looking at? What's, what's in front of you? I'm going to read to close. I'm going to remind you what we need to be thinking about. The glory of God. When God draws near and reveals His glory to His people. And when there is a season of revival, as there often was in Scotland, it can be said, glory filled the land. There is no way that we can run hard after God like this, like what we've seen with Hezekiah, like what we've seen in Ezra, like what we've seen in, in, in the church there, and, and plenty of other examples. There's no way you can run hard after God like that and God not rain down upon you. There's no way you can do that. Do you really think you can outdo and, and, and outrun His limits? No. So I say, let's seek Him with everything we've got. And if you've built up some good speed, mash on it some more. Here's the response for today. First and foremost, you must know Christ. He's the whole reason that we're even talking about this. When God's people get revived, what follows are people being saved. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation so that a person who's stuck in their sins, drowned out by the world, totally given to its bondage, can hear the gospel that Christ can set them free and the Holy Spirit moves in upon their soul, frees them from their sin, brings them to repentance, and they surrender their life to Him. And then they live new because God gives them a new heart. That's victory. That's our ministry. And then for the church, we need to get our... Well, as it said in one movie, you've lost your swing, you need to go find it. We need to be refocused again. And we need to do it bigger than just us. Let's commit it to God. The altar is open for whatever you may need to pray. Brother Tom, if you want to go and change, you can. We're going to have a time of baptism, but use this time to ask. Am I seeking God? Am I ready to go that far? As JT plays, you come.